Tuesday, March the 7th. You're listening to News Wrap with me, Anna Marie Evans. And I'm Aaron Tam. In tonight's program, state leader Zhao Leji outlines his expectations for Hong Kong. He encouraged most of us to make use of this golden opportunity to further develop our economy and also to work harder for a better Hong Kong. A seventh suspect is arrested in connection with socialite Abby Choi's murder. Foreign Minister Chin Gung says the diplomatic crisis sparked by the downing of an unmanned aircraft by the United States reveals its distorted perception of China. And in sport, just how much will PSG miss an injured Neymar? That's all coming up next on NewsRap. State leader Zhao Leji has urged local delegates to the National People's Congress to contribute to the SAR's long-term prosperity and integration into the nation's development when they met on the sidelines of the NPC session in Beijing. Mr Zhao outlined his expectations for Hong Kong as Kelly Yu reports from the capital. Local NPC Deputy Ma Fung Kwok, who's leading the Hong Kong delegation, quoted the state leader as saying that the NPC deputies should make the best use of Hong Kong's unique advantages under one country, two systems. Mr. Zhao spoke about his expectations for Hong Kong. First, to fully implement one country, two systems and resolve issues regarding to development. Second, to contribute to the country's development. Third, to achieve unity and solidarity. Mr. Ma said he and five other Hong Kong NPC members, Brave Chen, Starry Lee, Nancy Ip, Stanley Ng and Kenneth Falk, made speeches in a meeting. DAB chairwoman Starry Lee said she felt motivated by the speech made by Mr. Zhao, who is a Politburo Standing Committee member and the country's third highest ranking official. The leaders do deliver a very clear message that the central government do support uh, the implementation of one country, two system and uh, he encouraged most of us to make use of this golden opportunity to further develop our economy and also to work harder for a better Hong Kong. Another NPC deputy and Hong Kong lawmaker, Priscilla Leung, said Mr Chow's speech demonstrated Beijing's emphasis on the SAR's rule of law. She said the state leader stressed the need for the SAR to adhere to one country, two systems, protect the country's sovereignty and security, and maintain Hong Kong's prosperity. NPC Deputy and Finance Sector lawmaker Ronick Chen said the city should utilize financial technology and leverage its status as an international financial center. We should have more innovation on our product shelf. For example, we have just issued the tokenized green bond, which is the first of its kind you know, around the world. I think we have to continue to uh, launch uh, similar products so that we can capture and the first mover advantage. The director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Xia Baolong, and the director of the liaison office, Zheng Yanxiong, also attended the one-hour meeting. NPC Standing Committee Chairman Li Jian Shu says the national security law formulated for Hong Kong in 2020 was a game-changer because the city had long been defenseless in this aspect. Mr. Li today delivered a work report at the NPC session. He says the country's legislature helped the city form an effective democratic electoral system by improving the way the chief executive and legislative council members are elected. We have also formulated many decisions. 
to maintain the constitutional order in the special administrative regions and maintain the long-term stability and peace in Hong Kong and Macau region with our legislative guarantee. Foreign Minister Chin Gang says the United States has turned down the downing, has turned the downing of an unmanned aircraft into a diplomatic crisis, revealing Washington's distorted perception of China. In February, the U.S. shot down the 200-foot aircraft off the coast of South Carolina, and Beijing said it was a weather balloon that was blown off course. Mr. Chin says the hostile move shows that the U.S. sees China as its primary rival. Here's Kelly Yu from Beijing. Speaking at a press conference on the sidelines of the annual two sessions meeting in Beijing, Mr. Qing, speaking through a translator, said Washington's perception and views of Beijing are seriously distorted. It regards China as its primary rival and the most consequential geopolitical challenge. This is like the first button in a shirt being put wrong, and the result is that the U.S.-China policy has entirely deviated from the rational and sound track. Ahead of a meeting between President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden in November last year in Bali, American officials have spoken of the need to reinforce guardrails to keep the superpowers from conflict. Mr. Qing said these so-called guardrails simply meant that Beijing should not respond in words or action when slandered or attacked. He said this is impossible. If the United States does not hit the brake but continue to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. Who will bear the catastrophic consequences? Such competition is a reckless gamble, with the stakes being the fundamental interests of the two peoples and even the future of humanity. Mr. Qing also stressed that Taiwan is Beijing's first red line that the United States must not cross. The foreign minister said that the resolution of the Taiwan issue is a matter for the Chinese people, and no other country has the right to interfere. Mr. Qing also said China's modernization does not rely on war or colonization and provides an important source of inspiration for the world, especially developing countries. He told reporters that the country's modernization is dedicated to peace, development, cooperation, mutual benefit and a new path different from Western modernization. Local NPC Deputy Frank Chan says he finds it exciting and challenging to take on a new role as a member of the country's legislature. In an exclusive interview with RTHK, the former housing secretary said his priority is to win people's hearts by telling them the truth about our nation. He spoke to Kelly Yu via a video link in Beijing. Being a Hong Kong's deputy to the National People's Congress is indeed a challenge as well as an excitement for myself. Because at a time when we uh, were working in Hong Kong as a political appointee or as a civil servant, then most of the time we will be looking at things or issues from the perspective of Hong Kong. But at the same time, we also take care of the nation's need. But being a Hong Kong's deputy to the People's uh, Congress, then we must take issues from the country's perspective, at a height or horizon that is at the national level, and to take care of Hong Kong's needs at the same time. But we have to admit that there is a kind of need for us to bring the two together for mutual collaboration and beneficial for both sides. And that's the, the challenge that we need to look into. Of course, at time, there might be differences, then we would need to work it out and uh, collaborate to find a solution.
As for your expectations of this year's two sessions, what are the most pressing issues of Hong Kong at the moment, and what kind of proposals would you hope to push forward in the country's legislature? Hong Kong is having a very high percentage of elderly people as time goes by, and therefore we need to put into measures to provide basic and necessary and support for all these people who might need this kind of、uh, assistance. And therefore, if we could bring、uh, the kind of practice into the mainland, particularly in the Greater Bay Area, as a pilot, then we would be able to create a new、uh, industry in innovative technology research in elderly care, and also eventually to improve the service standard、uh, for every one of us, as well as the production of、uh, these innovative equipment and technology in the mainland. At a time when Hong Kong is recovering from the pandemic. And with borders open, these are the things that which are physicals in terms, because、uh, the number of passengers or goods being transported between the boundary and with the loop would eventually come back. But、uh, the challenge、uh, now we are facing would be the return of people's heart. By saying so, we need to tell more about the truth about our country and the status of where we, that we are in. And、uh, what's happening in 2019, and the way that we have to let the younger generations know the history about our country, and to let them feel about things、uh, actually happening in the, in the mainland, because、uh, seeing is believing. NBC member Frank Chan speaking to Kelly Yu. To other news, a seventh person has been arrested in connection with the murder of socialite Abby Choi. The suspect was picked up by authorities on the mainland and handed over to Hong Kong police. Frank Yong reports. The suspect is a 29-year-old woman who was handed over to Hong Kong officers at Shenzhen Bay Port. She is suspected of having assisted one of the murder suspects, and police allege she fled to the mainland after the case. Meanwhile, the mother of the murdered socialite is seeking a court order to block Choi's former father-in-law from selling a luxury property on Kaduri Avenue. Chang Yinfa filed a writ at the High Court against Kwong Kao, one of three people charged with Choi's murder. Choi's mother wants the court to declare Choi as the beneficial owner of the flat, and that the former father-in-law only holds the title deeds as a trustee. The mother is also hoping to stop him from selling, disposing, transferring, or dealing with the flat without her prior consent or knowledge. Tickets went on sale today for high-speed rail destinations across Guangdong, with services further afield than Shenzhen and Guangzhou set to resume in phases from Saturday. Leung Pakhei reports. People turned up at West Kowloon Station, hoping to get their hands on the express rail tickets. They can be bought up to 14 days in advance. One would-be traveller, Mr. Yu, told RTHK he had to turn up in person to buy a ticket to Puning because he couldn't get the MTR's high-speed rail app to work. When I tried to buy my ticket on the app. I couldn't see the departure date and time of the trains on it, so I was forced to come to West Kowloon Station to buy it. Another man, Mr. Wong, complained that he couldn't buy a ticket to Shenzhen North either online or from a machine at the station because he doesn't have a credit card. But when I tried to buy it at the West Kowloon Station's ticket machine, they do not accept autobus payment. He said. And a woman came away empty-handed when she found out that she couldn't book a seat to Fuzhou in April because tickets are only available up to 14 days in advance. 
Lingnan University says young people have to earn at least $70 per hour to meet their basic expenditures, with most believing they are underpaid. The university interviewed about 480 people aged between 18 and 29, earning less than $20,000 a month between May and December of last year. It found that most have long working hours and low wages, and 40% considered themselves as living in poverty. Professor Poon Nyai of the university's Department of Sociology spoke to Vanessa Cheng. Because the minimum wage policy are not good enough to protect the working people in general. So the young people really expect that we can really increase the minimum wage at least up to 60 Hong Kong dollar per hour, which would be really equivalent to the price of one meal in Hong Kong society. So actually the minimum wage is set to rise to $40 in May. So does this help these young people in Hong Kong? Not really. I mean, most of them we say that the minimum wage is really irrelevant to them. Most of these young people actually they coming from a working class background. So they would support their parents or support their siblings. So how much do they want the hourly wage be? They at least need to earn 71.6 Hong Kong dollar per hour. That would be just good enough to support their basic expenditure. These young people at least would like the minimum wage policy to take relevance to their basic living expenditure. Simply because they need to cover their rental costs and they need to cover their daily entertainment costs. So that's why they have to work at least two jobs. Hong Kong stocks have closed in the red, reversing morning gains as investors await Federal Reserve boss Jerome Powell's testimony to U.S. lawmakers, hoping for a better grasp of the bank's plans for fighting inflation. The Hang Seng Index fell over 0.3 percent, or 68 points, to 20,534. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul has defended his government's plan to use local funds to compensate Koreans enslaved by Japanese companies before the end of the Second World War. He says it's crucial for Seoul to build future-oriented ties with Tokyo. The deal announced yesterday is a controversial one, but one that has found favour with the business community in both countries and also is seen as a way to boost security in the region. But those who were forced into labour and some families of those workers who have subsequently died are not happy with the agreement. Earlier, I spoke to our Tokyo correspondent, Julian Ryle. Straight away, the uh, business communities in both South Korea and Japan are delighted. Um, clearly, there's some people in the South Korean uh, government in, in South Korea who are not happy, and there's a small proportion of Japanese who think that Japan has given in too much. Uh, but I think, on the whole, the, both sides realise that this is a very, very good thing. Can you take me back historically to what this slave labour issue was about? Tens of thousands of people from the Korean Peninsula were brought to Japan um, in the early decades of the last century. Uh, Japan controlled uh, the Korean Empire, it was part of the Korean Peninsula, it was part of their empire. And they were brought to Japan to work in coal mines, uh, to work in shipyards, to work in factories, often in very, very poor conditions. Uh, at the end of the war, uh, after Japan's defeat, they were essentially left to go back to the Korean Peninsula, um, or some settled here. Um, the Japanese companies that employed them didn't always pay them wages, money that they'd left in banks. There was a lot of there was complete chaos in Japan at the end of the war. These people have now sued the Japanese government or, or sued Japanese companies to get that money back. And also, they're looking for compensation uh, for the treatment they received when they were employed by these Japanese companies. And also, very important to a lot of them, is an apology. 
which they're not getting? Well, Japan says it has given them an apology. There have been numerous times down the years uh, when Japanese politicians and leaders have stated that they apologise for what happened. The, the Koreans often don't believe that it's sincere, um, particularly when they continue to see um, these issues not, re- not recorded in, in Japanese history books. Mm. Um, it's not taught to Japanese children at schools. And then we see Japanese politicians going to Yasukuni Shrine, which, of course, is the, uh, is the shrine in central Tokyo, uh, where the, uh, the remains of or the, the Japan's war dead are remembered. People in Korea look at that and say, Japan really isn't being sincere about its history. There can't be actually that many slave labourers left. There are very, very few. They have been dying out, obviously. They're getting very, very old. I understand that uh, the legal cases in South Korea in the last couple of years it only involves 15 people who are still alive and who are actually working in these mines and, uh, and shipyards and so on. But it is being carried on by the families of some of these people, and, of course, there are support groups as well. Yes, because there's also, uh, alongside, was the issue of the sex slaves, wasn't it? Was that ever resolved? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The couple of women is another one that uh, seems, to, seems to rumble on. It was agreed... There was an agreement between Sol and Tokyo some years ago that was meant to draw a line under it. That was under the government uh, of, of Mrs Park in Seoul. Um, but then uh, scrapped uh, by, the, by the next administration over Japan's objections. Japan believed that it had reached a final agreement and that the issue was no longer going to be a stumbling block in, in bilateral relations. Um, the, uh, the next government came in, Moon, came, Moon administration came in, scrapped that, that, uh, that agreement, and it was back to square one. Um, the case it hasn't been fixed since, but I understand it's possible now that uh, Mr. Yoon, um, the, South, the present South Korean president, might try to reach some sort of agreement with Japan on that as well. How is it seen in in Japan? I mean, is it seen as, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously the the business people are delighted. There's the security issue, as you've outlined. But uh, do people sort of say, oh, well, it's 80 plus years ago. How is it relevant to today? Is there that view as well? There is a lot of that, yes. Um, There is a sense that uh, uh, perhaps opportunistic Koreans are just trying to get more money out of Japan. Um, There is a sense that Japan has apologised and it has paid reparations quite enough. And there's also the sense that um, no matter how many times Japan does apologise, there's always going to be someone else demanding uh, uh, yet another apology. Even after the comfort women or the forced labourers are all dead, there's going to be another generation who come through and continue this campaign to what Japan sees as basically denigrate Japan. Um, uh, There are others, of course, in Japan who say Japan should be doing more they should live up to their uh, expectations on, in terms of apologising for what happened and, and paying reparations, and it should be taught to a young generation of Japanese. Um, I think the majority of people really just want the issue to be settled one way or the other. I think they realise that there are plenty of other challenges in the region um, at the moment, none of which are going away soon, and Japan and South Korea both really need to be allies rather than at each other's throats at every opportunity. The United Nations has warned that hundreds of thousands of people in Turkey and Syria are in desperate need of humanitarian aid, one month after powerful earthquakes devastated both countries. Over 50,000 people were killed. Last month, the UN launched an appeal of $1 billion U.S. billion to assist survivors in Turkey. But Alvaro Rodriguez, the UN's resident coordinator in Turkey, said only 10% of that appeal has been funded. The reality is that if we do not move beyond the roughly 10% that we have, 
the UN and its partners will not be able to meet the humanitarian needs. This is an issue of humanity and protecting the lives of people that through no fault on their own have been placed in harm's way as a result of the earthquake. Unfortunately, given the number of people that have been, uh, uh, that have relocated, given the number of people that have been injured, and given the level of the devastation, uh, we do have extensive humanitarian needs now, and I think they will continue to remain with us in the weeks to come. And that was Alvaro Rodriguez from the UN in Turkey to Ukraine now, where one of the fiercest battles of the war is continuing for control of Bakhmut. The besieged eastern city has become a focal point for Russian commanders who've struggled to deliver any military victories in months. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he's told military commanders to find the forces to boost Bakhmut's defences. I told the commander-in-chief to find the appropriate forces to help our troops in Bakhmut. There is no part of Ukraine about which one can say that it can be abandoned. There is no Ukrainian trench in which the resilience and heroism of our warriors would be disregarded. The occupier kills for the very fact that we are Ukrainians. The Russian paramilitary group Wagner has sent waves of men into the fight in Bakhmut, but Wagner has complained of not having enough ammunition and there are reports of Russians armed only with shovels. So what exactly is happening there? Yaroslav Trofimov is the Wall Street Journal's chief international affairs correspondent. He's just back from the front line in Bakhmut. The city of Bakhmut, which is a small city of only 70,000 people before the war began, has really been the focal point of fighting in Eastern Ukraine for the last several months. And that's where Wagner, the Russian paramilitary organization, has been really trying to push through Ukrainian defenses. And it is the only place along the entire front line where Russia has managed to advance since last summer. So Wagner has been able to seize about 40% of the area of Bakhmut as of now. They are now in control of the entire eastern bank of the Bakhmutivka River that runs through the city. And the Ukrainian forces there are in a very difficult position because the remaining two paved roads into Bakhmut are under artillery control by Wagner, which means that any movement there is extremely dangerous and so all the resupply and evacuations have to go through dirt roads and this time of the year Obviously, the soil is wet and nearly impassable for wheeled vehicles. Just a few weeks ago, the family of Bruce Willis announced the actor had been diagnosed with dementia at the age of just 67. But now his wife, Emma Hemming-Willis, has been forced to plead with paparazzi photographers in Los Angeles to leave him alone. This one is going out to the photographers and the video people um, that are trying to get those exclusives of my husband out and about. Just keep your space. I know this is your job, um, but maybe just keep your space for the video people. Please don't be yelling at my husband, asking him how he's doing or whatever, the woohooing and the yippee kayes. Just don't do it, okay? The BBC's Peter Bowes has more. Well, she has a, a quite simple message. She's saying back off and show some understanding of the position her husband is in. And she explains, she says, if you're someone who's looking after someone with dementia, you know how difficult and stressful it can be to get them out in the world and to navigate them safely. And she says it's clear that a lot of education is needed. She says photographers and video people that are trying to get these exclusives of her husband, just as we've just heard, keep your space. And she says her go 
goal is to raise awareness around dementia. It's 6.23, sports is next. Good evening, I'm Haley Yip. Neymar has promised to come back stronger after Paris Saint-Germain announced the Brazilian star requires ankle surgery and will be out for four, three to four months. More from the BBC's Maz Faruqi. It's been a bit of a miserable time for Neymar, hasn't it? Brazil, of course, didn't have a great Qatar World Cup on his return to PSG. He picked up a serious ankle sprain on February the 20th, the latest of what the club described as several episodes of instability in his right ankle in recent years. And following this, medical staff, the club continued, recommended a ligament repair operation to avoid a major risk of recurrence. That surgery is expected to take place in Doha, PSG. In the English Premier League, Brentford extended their unbeaten run to 12 games and moved to within a point of 7th place Fulham in the hunt for European qualification as they beat their West London rivals 3-2. The win would have been more emphatic for Thomas Frank's Brentford side if they hadn't conceded a goal deep into added time. I think it's more the, the big derby and I think it's more that we really, yeah, as you said, maybe just badly wanted to come out to, to play again uh, uh, and, and, and build on that uh, confidence and momentum we have. In Champions League action later tonight, Chelsea will try to overturn their last 16 first leg deficit against Borussia Dortmund. The German side take a 1-0 lead into Stamford Bridge. Chelsea forward Joao Felix says his team feels relaxed ahead of the match. Zero pressure. I think it's this is our job. Uh, we just have to enjoy, win the games, uh, and yeah. But yeah, our levels of confidence and attention are high uh, because you have to win. But yeah, we will enjoy, and if we, we do the the things right, we will win. Borussia Dortmund are on a roll, having won their last ten games in all competitions under the leadership of Edin Terzic. It's about us, and it's a very important game for, 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 for us as a club. And we want to show that we can compete on this level and that we are ready to fight to be one of the top eight teams in Europe. But by the end of the day, we just want to deserve it. If we deserve to go to the next round, we're going to be happy. In another match, Benfica host Club Bruges. The Portuguese side took the first leg 2-0. Moving on to the NBA, Donovan Mitchell poured in 40 points as the Cleveland Cavaliers sent the Boston Celtics spinning to a third straight defeat. The Cavs' last lead was very early in the game until now. Donovan Mitchell, he got free by getting these free throws. Now he's feeling really good and he has been dominating. The score was 118 to 114 at the end of overtime in a heavyweight clash of the Eastern Conference rivals. NFL News Now and former Las Vegas Raiders quarterback Derek Carr has found a new home in New Orleans. Carr has agreed to a four-year deal with the Saints that could be worth up to 150 million US dollars. He played nine seasons for the Raiders but struggled late last season. There were scary moments for Boston Red Sox infielder Justin Turner during spring training in Major League Baseball. He needed 16 stitches after leaving Monday's game against the Detroit Tigers when he was hit on the face with the pitch. The 38-year-old fell to the ground after getting hit by right-hander Matt Manning. Medical personnel rushed to the plate where Turner was bleeding and had a towel on his face as he walked off the field. That's your look at sports.
Thanks, Haley. He was the last remaining original member of the American rock band Leonard Skinner. Now Gary Rossington has died at the age of 71. The guitarist had appeared on all their albums and co-wrote their smash hit Sweet Home Alabama in 1974. The BBC's David Silido looks back at his life. Originally conceived as a way of giving the vocalist Ronnie Van Zant a bit of a rest, the epic Freebird became the band's defining song, and it began with Gary Rossington's slide guitar. Gary Rossington from Jacksonville, Florida, was one of the original members of the band, which had been named after a PE teacher who had objected to his long hair. Their big break was supporting the Who. It was only two weeks, but it just changed everything for us. You know, we'd never seen so many people, especially to play in front of. It was like crazy. That's when we first started drinking. We never drank, and it scared us so bad we started drinking, and we got a bottle from the Who. It was his riff that turned into another of their hits, Sweet Home Alabama. But this was a group that had more than its share of misfortune. Gary Rossington was in the 70s seriously injured in a plane crash that killed three members of the band. There was also a near-fatal car crash, drug addiction and, in recent years, heart attacks. But he continued to perform. His last concert was in February, ending, of course, with Freebird. Under the weather, mainly fine, dry at first. Minimum temperature will be about 18 degrees tomorrow, warm during the day, with a maximum temperature of around 25 degrees. The outlook mainly fine, with relatively low visibility in the following couple of days. Rather warm during the day, current temperature 21 degrees Celsius, humidity 62%. The red fire danger warning is in force. A journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new value, and a new experience. This is Sunset Sounds with Simon Wilson.
kicking off this Tuesday evening sunset sounds with the sad news of the passing of Gary Rossington, founding member of Leonard Skinner. I think he's the last of the original lineup. Sad news, but what a legacy, eh? Welcome along to Sunset Sounds. It's Tuesday.